Well, good morning and Merry Christmas. Turn to your neighbor on your right and say Merry Christmas. Well, it is uh, good to be back. I was with you a few weeks ago and uh, now they invited me back. So uh, I must have not blown it. So that was good. But I'm Josh Laxton. I work at the Billy Graham Center, and my family and I, we uh, attend Wheaton Bible, and so we will be joining this coming year. So they have, uh, they have told me all of the uh, things to do in order to join, so we will be going through that process in January. Uh, I just want you to know that we love Wheaton Bible, and that means we love Tri-Village. And so it is great, it, is, it really is, it is such an honor and a joy to be with you today to share in this Christmas season. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. While you are turning there, I have a little funny story to share with you about Luke chapter 2. Now, Joni and I, they'll be here with me in the second service. We have three children, Caleb, Ellie, and Luke. Caleb is 13, Ellie is 11, and Luke is 8. Well, so when we were pregnant with Luke, we were trying to figure uh, a name out. Now, we, uh, we, we chose not to know the sex of Luke until he was born, so we were picking out two different names. And so we, we had picked uh, the, the girl name, and I won't tell you that because I've forgotten the girl name because he's a boy. But we had, we had chosen Luke, or Joni had chosen Luke because I had named Caleb and Ellie, and Joni's like, I got this one. And I'm like, okay, you get this one. And she's like, I want to name him Luke. And I'm like, all right, good. Uh, let's figure out a middle name because I wanted to name Luke Jude. And so, hey, let's just, let's just do Luke Jude. Well, she said, no, let's think about it a little bit longer. And, and, and so we went and we were talking to our family members. And then we asked Caleb, our oldest, who was five at the time. We're like, Caleb, what do you think we should name Luke's middle name? He said, let's name him chapter two. So it'd be Luke chapter two. You can, you can tell he was a preacher's kid. So, uh, and I'm like, well, that's really good, but I don't think uh, Luke wants to be named chapter two Laxton. So, uh, but Luke chapter two is really near and dear to my heart because it really does mark the time that our King of Kings and our Lord of Lords entered into time and space. Now, I want to make a proposal to you this morning that kind of will set up this, this, this promise of wonder that we'll talk about this morning. And here's the proposal, is that we live in a culture and even a Christian subculture that has lost the wonder of Christmas. We've lost the wonder. We've lost the awe. We've lost the marvelous. I want you to listen to this famous Christian song by Andy Williams titled, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. Now here's what he sings. It is the most wonderful time of the year with kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. It's the most wonderful time of the year. So that's the reason why it's the most wonderful time because you have kids jingle belling and everyone telling you be of good cheer. That's one of the reasons why it's the most wonderful time of the year according to Andy Williams. And then he goes on. It's the hap happiest. It reminds me of Clark Griswold when he says that. But happiest happiest season of all with those holiday greetings and gay happy meetings. Now that was, it was written a long time ago. When friends come to call, it's the hap happiest season 
of all. So, so as you go to the store, as you go to Starbucks, as you go to Jewel Osco, as you go to Mariano's and they give you these holiday greetings, that's the reason why it's the most wonderful time of the year. And then there will be parties for hosting, marshmallows for toasting, and caroling out in the snow. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I never equate Christmas time to toasting marshmallows. Have you? Maybe in the fall, but not in wintertime, not during Christmas time. And then here's another one. There'll, there'll be scary ghost stories. Really? At Christmas time? That's Halloween. Andy, come on, you're missing the boat. And, and tales of the glories of Christmas long, long ago. So they're reminiscing about Christmases long, long ago. And so that makes it the most wonderful time of the year. And then he just kind of ends. It's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> this is pretty funny. There'll be much mistletoeing. There'll be a lot of action for Christmas. It makes, makes it the most wonderful time of the year. And hearts will be glowing when loved ones are near. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Now, now we're, we're at church, so we're, re we're really with the church, so just don't lie, but is that really what Christmas is all about? Is that, is that really what makes Christmas time the most wonderful time of the year? No. But, but I would propose that our, not only our culture has, got, has, has gotten sucked into this trap of believing all of the hustle and bustle and all the things surrounding Christmas makes it the most wonderful time of the year, but sometimes... The church is even sucked into it. We're sucked into that vortex where, yes, we know that, that Christmas time is about the birth of our Savior, but, but we know, but do we truly know? Because now, I, I, here's what I would say. If we didn't do this, if we did this more throughout the year, then, uh, then, then that's where I would say we have a problem. And the truth of the matter is we do that throughout the year. Because if you really think about it, Christmas time is a, is a magnification of really what we do throughout the year. So think about it this way. Black Friday, Cyber Monday, shopping magnifies our lust of money, materials, and consumerism. And I'm talking about the church. Elf on the Shelf and Santa's Naughty or Nice list magnifies our moral therapeutic deism of try harder and do better. Christmas, holiday, friends and family parties, Christmas activities on top of everything else magnifies our overcommitted nature where there is little time for reflection, solitude, and prayer. And worship services on Christmas Eve magnifies our view of how many of us really do view church. I'm here because it's just what I do, but I want you to make it entertaining, and I want you to make sure the message isn't really long because I got things to do. And you say, oh, Josh, that's really harsh. Listen, I've been a pastor for 12 years. I've seen it. And, and like I said, I mean, like, it just doesn't happen at Christmas time. We, 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 just, we just don't in some sense negate the wonder of Christmas time. We actually negate the wonder throughout the year. And, and here's the thing. I'm not trying to shame us in participating in any of these things. I was, I was wrapping Christmas presents yesterday. Like, like I, I'm, I'm, partic I'm a participant in it. Like we've had 
We've had Christmas parties. We've had all, I'm not saying don't participate, but what happens is that we have more commercialized our life than looked at the conversional nature of our life in Jesus. We have looked at more of the transactional nature of life than we have of the transformative nature of Christ's life in us. We tend to view life more as selfish or self-centered than sacrificial, more nostalgia than eschatological. I was thinking about it this, this, this way this past week. Now, I'm 37 years old. I have a 13, 11, 8, as I said. And I always look forward to Christmas time. And I had to really think and process, why do I always look forward to Christmas time? Because when I was growing up, it really was a magical time. Yes, we, we went to church, and I was raised in church, and I came to know Jesus today. But for me, it was a magical time because Santa came. And Santa left me, I mean, just like these toys appeared. Like, I would, I would get up in the middle of the night at 2 o'clock, and I would, I would go down to the living room to see if Santa had come yet. I, I was off at school, and so it was a really good time as well because it was like two or three weeks off of school, and who, what kid did not want what? And so I was thinking, man, this was, this was why I really viewed Christmas time as the most wonderful time of the year. And so many a times, Christmas for adults, it's nostalgia. Because we want, to, we want to go back to the way it was. We, we want to conjure up those feelings. We want to try to, like Clark Griswold, make more of those types of memories. Because we remember the wonder, but somewhere along the way, we've lost the wonder. But what I want to, what, what I want to invite all of us into, because maybe you're sitting out here and somebody invited you for the first time to, to church here at Tri-Village, or you're listening online. And you're trying to figure out this whole Jesus thing. I want to invite you into wonder. For believers, I want to re-invite you into wonder this morning. Because here's the main point that we're going to flesh out. Christmas time marks God's plan for the world, which offers all people the promise of wonder. So Christmas time marks God's plan for the world. So God's plan for the world offers up the promise of wonder. If you've lost the wonder of Christmas, and I'm not just talking about for this season, I'm talking about for all of the year, then I want to invite you into this promise of wonder. So will you stand with me as we read Luke chapter 2? Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him, so they're engaged, they're betrothed, for she was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you, everybody say it, good news. Euangelion, good news. I can't wait till I get to that part. That will cause great joy for all people. 
Today in the town of David, Bethlehem, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Lord, the King, Yahweh. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, everybody say it, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those whom his favor rests. When the angels had left him and uh, gone into heaven, the shepherd said to another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed, wonder at the shepherds, what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Let's pray. Jesus, may we leave this morning in wonder. May we live in and in light of this wonder that Christmas brings because it marks a time for God's plan for the world. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So what I want to do this morning, somewhat briefly, is to look at three elements of God's plan that fulfills this promise of wonder. And so I've created this acrostic because that's just what I do. I love creating things like this. I've created the, the acrostic or, orchestration, announcement, and response. And so when, when you think about these three elements, I want you to think about an or, and I want you to think about the orchestration as being kind of the, the handle. I want you to think about the announcement being the stem, and then I want you to think about the response being the paddle, because if you want to row towards wonder, you need to hold these three things, orchestration, announcement, and response intention. So number one, orchestration. We see this in verse one through seven. Look in verse one. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree. Now, it is very interesting that Dr. Luke, who is a medical doctor, he is writing from an historian's perspective. And many scholars would say that when it comes to the birth narrative, that he has interviewed Mary. And so these are memories of Mary of the first coming of Jesus. Now, it is very interesting that Dr. Luke begins with Caesar Augustus. So as he's telling the narrative, the story of the first coming of the king of kings, he actually begins that narrative with Caesar. Now, why does he do that? Because he wants to show that the coming of the king of kings is rooted in history. It's not just Jewish history. No, it is rooted in all of history. And not only that, but he's wanting to show who was the king during that time. And we see Caesar Augustus. Now, it's very interesting that 
Caesar Augustus, we know him by Octavian. He was a fighter. He was a warrior. It was under Caesar Augustus that uh, the Roman Empire enlarged. It got bigger. And then it was also under Caesar Augustus where the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, was issued. Then you also had Caesar Augustus. He uses the word Augustus, which wasn't his name, it was Octavian, but the word Augustus meant honor, revere, holy. So what is he saying? He's saying, hey, I'm a God. See, before Caesar Augustus, before Octavian, it was just Caesar. But now Caesar Augustus, he wanted people to see himself as a god. Now, another interesting part about Caesar is that in a couple of cities in Greece, they hailed Caesar as savior. And they even marked on a statue, savior of the whole world. So it is extremely interesting that Luke, he is going to root the birth of Jesus during the time of Caesar Augustus who had self-proclaimed himself as a god and Greece cities had proclaimed him as savior of the world. Think about the omnipotence and the omniscience, the all-power and the all-knowing of God that in history he is going to send Jesus at a time that a man who ruled the known world had claimed himself as God and as Savior of the world. But we just don't see Jesus coming during Caesar. We also see that a decree was made from Caesar Augustus for the entire Roman world. And so they wanted to kind of mark who was in the territory. They wanted to mark how many people they had in the entire Roman Empire. And so now you had people leaving and moving to go to their hometown or the lineage from where they were. Now, this is going to have to happen because God is working through some young teenagers, Mary and Joseph, who actually live in Nazareth, but they got to get to Bethlehem. Now, we see this in verse 4. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David. Now, why do they have to be in Bethlehem? Well, we see in Micah chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient of days. What is Micah saying? Micah is saying the Messiah, the anointed one, the ruler to come, he's got to be born or he will be born in Bethlehem. So it is very interesting that Caesar Augustus, he is orchestrating a decree to go out to all of the Roman Empire, including the land of Judah, Judea, where now Mary and Joseph lived in this little town of Nazareth and they've got to leave and they've got to go to Bethlehem because that's where Joseph is from. Do you see the orchestration happening of God? And so Joseph, he takes Mary and they leave from the town of Nazareth. Now, just think about it this way. Wouldn't it, wouldn't it have been easier for God just to, just to find a couple already in Bethlehem? Like, hey, God, I mean, you, you're, you're putting a lot of, you, you know, kind of improbability in there with these two young people because they got to be obedient to the census. I mean, just find, just find two, two, two young people who, who are betrothed and, 
you, you know, find, find another young, young woman there. And, and no, but what, what he's showing is the power he has to orchestrate history. And so they go to Bethlehem because that's where the Savior has to be born. But, but not only that, not only does the Savior have to be born in Bethlehem, but he has to come from the line of David. Now, now why does the Savior have to come from the line of David? Well, you have to know 2 Samuel chapter 7 in the Old Testament. Because God promises David this, I will make you a house, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom. Everybody say it, forever. Oh, that's why. So Joseph is from the house and the line of David they're in Nazareth, but they have to move to Bethlehem because that's where the census is happening. But he also is going to be the father of the king of glory who needed to come from the line of David so that he could establish God's throne forever and ever and ever. And again, this is the power of God to orchestrate history. Now we see in verse 6, while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. Now, obviously on the surface, we're like, all right, so it's, so it's been nine months and the baby is, is, is ripe and ready to, to be birthed. And, and so, yes, on the surface, yeah, that's nine months and, and the time for the baby to be, to be born has, has come. But I want us to see even a deeper dimension in that the time has come. Now, now why now? Why, why should Jesus be born now? Why not wait until the 21st century when technology is at its height, uh, where it would be easier to proclaim the good news, where it would be easier for the good news to go about to all nations? Why, why not wait? Why now? Well, this is a little bit of speculation, but not too much. And, and, and here it is. Do you know how many years elapsed in between the time God gave Abraham the promise to give his descendants the promised land and them actually going into the promised land? 430 years. From the time that God gave Abraham the promise to the time Moses comes to Egypt to deliver his people, 430 years. You fast forward Old Testament, you get to Malachi. The prophet Malachi is prophesying. In between Malachi and now, guess how many years elapsed? Over 400 years. Now, now here's what's so interesting. So 430 years from the time God gave the promise to Abraham to the time Moses, the deliverer, came and had this great exodus. Now, over 400 years from the time Malachi ends the Old Testament canon and the gospel begins. The greater Moses coming to deliver a greater exodus. See, that's the power of our God. I mean, I want you to think about it. We live in a culture of improbability. Like you, It's just improbable that you're going to hit the mega millions if you play. It's improbable that if you play high school sports that you're going to make it into a professional 
sport. It's improbable that you'll be struck by lightning. It's improbable that the Chicago Bears will win the Super Bowl. I know, man. I was watching, you know, I was watching, you know, having lived in the area, I got to watch, right? It's improbable that they'll even hit a field goal. I mean, it's just improbable. <laughs> we, live, we live in a day and age of improbability, yet think about how improbable all of these events were. It's in the quadrillions, as one scientist put it. Yet God in his power and in his sovereignty is lining up events for the Savior of the world to be born. Think about it this, this way. Here's a principle. History is really God working his story of redeeming the world. That's what history is. So. So that's the orchestration. And just on, just on a, a side note, you can either be a footnote in his story or you can leave a footprint in his story. See, Caesar Augustus was just a footnote. Mary and Joseph, leaving their footprint. Number two, announcement. Number two. So you got orchestration. Everybody say orchestration. Orchestration. Number two, announcement. Now, I love this announcement. Verse 9. An angel of the Lord appeared to the shepherds, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. I want you to imagine that you're a shepherd. You're, you're young. You're out there watching these sheep, just like any other night. I mean, it's quiet. You have some sheep in the back. You know, you make sure no big bad wolf's coming to get the sheep. I mean, and you just sitting there talking, sitting there counting the stars, counting the sheep, not to fall asleep, right? So, so that it's just an ordinary night, but then an angel of the Lord, an angel who had left the presence of the Lord, basking in the glory of the Lord, now shows himself to the shepherds. Now, anytime you come in contact with, with something divine, something glorious, the presence and the glory of God, you're afraid. That's, that's your first impulse. Oh my gosh, what's going to happen? I'm going to die. But did you, did you see with the angel? Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I have not come here to hurt you. I have not come here to harm you. So don't be afraid. This is a positive visitation right here. Because immediately he says, I bring you good news. I bring you good news. Now, here's what's interesting about that word good news. Euangelion. Michael Horton, theologian, in his book, The Gospel Driven Life, here's what he notes. In its secular Greek context... Euangelion, or good news, was normally used for the word of victory on the battlefield brought by a herald from the front lines. And then the term would be what the early Christians borrowed for their message and mission to the world. So we have this angel who had been basking the glory and the presence of God. Now sees God orchestrate history for his redemptive purposes. Now he goes and he says, I bring you good news. What's the good news? A victory. 
A victory. Now, who was it to? To them. I bring you good news that will be a cause for great joy for all the people. Now, here's what you have to understand, though. If you need good news of victory, that means there is bad news of defeat. Because good news cannot be good news unless it counteracts bad news. So what was the bad news for the shepherds? Well, here's some ideas. They lived in an oppressed nation where the Romans ruled the area. And so they were oppressed by the Romans. So that was the bad news. And they knew that good news was, was, was at least written about where a redeemer, a deliverer would come. So, so there's one aspect of bad news. Uh, they lived in a world with a broken and socioeconomic system. Uh, they were impoverished. They were looked down upon. The, uh, the shepherd industry was a very poor profession. Like little kids going to Jewish school, they didn't go, Ooh, I can't wait to be a professional shepherd when I grow up. No, that wasn't the case. They were part of a world that was broken spiritually. Some scholars believe uh, that they potentially would be raising sheep as sacrifices for the temple because of their proximity to Jerusalem. So if that's true, then they would see a deep need for someone to save God's people from sin. So those, so those were aspects of maybe bad news that were going on in their mind and their heart. I do believe that today, one of the issues facing the American church as it seeks to engage a growing and secular culture is this idea of bad news. We need to understand what bad news is in our culture. Yes, once in a Christendom culture, when the church was at the center, sure, it was easy to talk about how sinful people were, how they lived in sin, how they were separated from God. But that's no longer seen as bad news. Now, yes, it still remains true, but I'm talking from a cultural point of view. They don't see that as bad news. So we must seek to understand the contextual nature of what our culture sees as bad news. We need, in other words, we need to find out where they live in defeat so that we can share with them how Jesus gives them victory. So, we do know this about our culture. They live in broken relationships. They live in a broken sexuality. They have broken dreams, broken purpose. They have a broken worldview because there's, there's not this meta-narrative. There's not this grand narrative making sense of their life. Uh, here's another one, broken politics. See, this is one of the things that I'm so grateful for about King Jesus. Do we understand that his first coming was to inaugurate the kingdom of God, not to inaugurate the Democratic Party, not to inaugurate the Republican Party, but to inaugurate the kingdom of God? That's what we look to. That is what we root our life into. That's who we root our identity into. But we live in a culture that is broken by politics, broken health. And so the good news of Jesus is this victory over all these things. So there's this good news that this angel brings that will bring great joy. Now, joy is the experience of gladness. 
Joy is much deeper than happiness because joy is not predicated on situations or circumstances. Joy, on the other hand, does not have to be temporary. Joy is everlasting because it is a state, not an event. So this good news is not just going to bring you just happiness for a moment is going to bring you joy for a lifetime, regardless of whether or not you are poor or lowly, or regardless of what profession you have, regardless of who reigns over the empire, this good news brings you great joy because it is a declaration that victory has come. Now, we... Uh, we see that the angel comes. Now, could you imagine, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Now, if you're the shepherd and you have this bad news and you hear there's this good news being declared to you, what do you think about where can I find this good news? I mean, it just is it's, it's natural, right? Well, so the angel kind of beats the shepherds to the punch in verse 11. Today, hey, great news, good news that I bring to you, that will bring you great joy today, today. Not, not you got to wait, you got to wait another 5, 10, 15 years. No, you don't have to wait another 400 years, today. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you, to you. And he is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Lord God. Now. That's the good news. It's, this, it's this, this baby. He's the Savior. Now, that is the, that, that's the, it's one of the most odd things in all of Scripture. So the angel shows up to declare victory. And you're like, where is the, where is the greater Caesar? Where's the, where's the Caesar Augustus who's going to beat the Caesar Augustus? Like, you're looking for a warrior. You're looking for an emperor. You're looking for a king. And then the next thing you know, the angel says, it's a baby. <laughs> That's crazy. And then they kind of go along with it. Okay, um, well, how do we know we found that baby? Because there are a lot of babies out there. I don't know we found that baby. We have golden diapers. You know, we'll be singing. You know. So this will be a sign to you, verse 12. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Every time I just, because I'm from the South, as you can tell, um, every time I, I, I see this verse and this will be a sign unto you I just think of blue collar comedy here's your sign you know like and, and so here's the shepherds here's your sign a baby wrapped in cloths lying in a manger let me just go through those really quick about the sign of the baby why baby what is it because the sign represents a greater spiritual truth so why, why baby because because this baby represents humanity helpless hopeless like, I've never seen a baby feed him or herself. A baby can do about three things. A baby can cry, a baby can flail, and a baby can mess him or herself. That, that's it. Hey, welcome to humanity. 
So, so the baby, humanity is hopeless, helpless, but this baby has come to help. Then he's wrapped in cloths. Now, now what, does this, what, what does this element of the sign represent? Well, I don't know about you, but we swaddled our babies. Now, I was not the best swaddler. Somehow, all three of my children were able to break my swaddling technique. <laughs> Now, now, Joni, on the other hand, she wrapped that baby like a burrito. Like a, I mean, like tight burrito. That baby was like, <laughs> his baby, baby wasn't getting out. Now, why do you swaddle babies? For warmth, for comfort, for security. It's, it kind of stimulates them. It kind of stimulates or reminds them of the womb. A tight, warm, secure place. What's this baby going to do? This baby is going to be the blanket for humanity. Wrapping the world in the love of God. Insecurity and comfort and peace. Okay? Then you got lying in the manger. Now, whoa, whoa, what does this element of this sign represent? I mean, you think, I, I, I do not like germs. Like, now we, li- we were in this flu season, strep throat season. Listen, if, if, my, if one of my family members gets just a slight cough, it's pounding. No hugs, no kisses from daddy. Like, I don't like germs. Anytime I would touch them, I'm going to wash my hands. I mean, no, no lie. You ask my wife when she comes in. Like, I just don't like germs. Who lays their baby in a feeding trough? Like, this is the sign of all signs. I mean, if you think about it this way, I mean, if God could orchestrate history for all of it to line up where, where baby... Jesus would come at that moment. Don't you think he could orchestrate room in an end for them? But no. It's a manger. Because he wants to represent how low he's willing to go to raise you as high as he is. See, we're low. We're dirty. We're messy. We're nasty. And yet our God of glory, perfect Holy, reach down to the utter depths of a manger. So we have this sign that the angel announces. But can I just say for those who might want to know where to find this Jesus today, he is no longer in a manger. You can find him today. Everybody say today. You can find him today, but he's not in a manger. No, no. He's on a throne. Seated at the right hand of God. And he is ready to help you. He's ready to swaddle you. He's ready to forgive you. He's sitting there on the throne ready to do all those things. So we got orchestration. Everybody say orchestration. We got announcement, announcement. And then the third is response. Now, this is, this is amazing. The angels, now a host of them, show up. Host. It's not just one anymore. There's a host. And what do they say? They, they actually sing a song. Glory to God in the highest. Like you can't get any higher, Lord. Glory, praise, and elation to you in the highest. And on earth, peace to those whom his favor rests. Now, here's a Bible trivia question. You ready for it? Here it is. Ready? Say you ready. What two other places do angels show up and give God praise and glory? All right, here you go. Job 38, 7. 
you know, Job, he had lost everything. And then God finally responds in 38, chapter 38. And he says this to Job, Where were you when I created the earth? Tell me, since you know so much, O Job. Who decided on its size? Certainly you know that. Who came up with the blueprints and the measurements? How was its foundation poured? And who set the cornerstone while the morning stars sang in chorus and all the angels shouted praise? So they show up at creation. Here's the second place that a host of angels show up to praise God. Luke chapter 15. And Jesus says this, Angels rejoice over one center who repents. So why? Now you cannot miss this. Why? Do these angels show up now at the birth of Jesus? Because Jesus, don't miss it, he is the dawn of new creation. See, the world, the created order had been marred by sin, been broken, had been defiled by us, yet Jesus, he is the baby, the savior of the world to break in the dawn of new creation, to make all things new. And the angels show up and they give God the highest glory because he has now come in the form of flesh to make all things new. And that's something to get excited about. And then, in peace on earth to whom he's well pleased. Now, this is, here, here's the thing that we do know. You and I cannot do enough of good works to please God. And we do understand in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve sinned, chaos ensued. And there was this conflict, there was this hostility, there was this strife and division between man and God, between man and himself, and between man and others. But yet now the angels declare this peace that man can have from God. And how can now man have this peace, this harmony, this total flourishing now? Well, this peace is only found in the Prince of Peace, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God. So if you need peace, if our world needs peace, we cannot legislate it. We cannot conjure it up. In our own self. We can't work for it unless the Prince of Peace is working in and through us. And I would just propose to you today that if you look at social media today, even within the evangelical realm, there is no peace. Why? Because the Prince of Peace somehow is missing. Uh, I, I, I got to wrap up, but there, there, there's, a, there's a poem I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. This poem was written from a man who had suffered much. He had lost his wife. Uh, one of his children was in the Civil War and was nearly paralyzed. And at the very end, he says this. And in despair, I bowed my head. There is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then he heard the bells. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Let me ask you this, have you experienced that peace? Because that was the response of the angels. 
But then the, the last thing I'll say is this. Did you notice the response of the shepherds? When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another in verse 15, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off. It means they ran. And they found Mary and Joseph. Let me ask you this. Who watched the, who watched the sheep? See, when you are intoxicated with the wonder of God, nothing else matters. Because the God who orchestrated all of the events in history to bring about that baby, he can watch over those sheep. So they go, they they find the baby, they find Mary and Joseph. And then they leave going back. And what are they doing? Praising God. Didn't change their lot. They were still going back to the pasture. But they went with wonder. And that's what we want to do today. Is that we want to leave in wonder. Because Christmas time marks God's plan for the world. Which ushers in the promise of wonder. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you for the promise of wonder. The promise of wonder. May we leave in that promise. I pray for every single person in here today, those listening online, if they've never experienced the wonder of Christmas, the wonder of Christ, may they do that today. Where you, where you sit to experience that wonder, you simply cry out, I'm a sinner. I am broken, I live in defeat, and I need Jesus who brings the victory. I yield myself to you. I seek to walk in wonder all the days of my life for who you are, what you have done, and what you will do. For it's in your name we pray, King Jesus. Amen. Let's respond.